So hello and welcome to the Paddock Pass podcast. It's the first Paddock Pass podcast of 2019. I'm Steve English and today we'll be joined by David Emmett and Neil Morrison. And we look back on last year and we look forward to the coming season as well. So David, happy new year to you. A happy new year to you, uh, Steve. Um, uh, Well, I've been having uh, a little bit of uh, free time. I understand you've been well not quite jetting off all over the world but at least jetting off to uh, watch some motorbikes yeah jetting off to the industrial estates of eastern germany so a couple of days at the super enduro second round of the championship was in risa so i was fairly busy for the new year but uh, neil you had a fairly busy christmas and new year as well yeah not busy in the sense of working but just busy in the sense of catching up with people back at home um, went to a football game over in England, uh, spent New Year in Edinburgh for Hogmanay and uh, yeah, back to Spain earlier this week, uh, second week of January we're recording this in. So yeah, good feeling like the batteries are recharged and ready to attack 2019. I think it's going to be a, another good one. The man is too modest. He went to see Liverpool, just somehow managed to come back from behind to destroy Arsenal, Neil. Yeah, it was quite something, wasn't it? Um, but, you know, I'm kind of cursing them because for that two or three week spell over Christmas, I did start to believe that it was going to be the the year that they finally end that uh, premiership drought. Um, and I think it's just going to make it all the more painful when it doesn't happen uh, in May. Well, in Klopp, you have to trust, Neil. I got but, for punishment, uh, you might call me, what? but you all knew that already. Uh, but of course, but of course. But uh, on this show, David, we're going to look back at last year, we're going to look forward to next year, and we're going to each pick one news story or one element of the season that we thought was the standout moment from 2018, and then the one moment that we're going to look forward to the most for 2019. So as we look back to last season, what's the one moment that stands out to you or the one topic that stands out to you? Uh, well, for me, it was um, it it was Yamaha. Uh, uh, we started the year expecting uh, both Maverick Vinales and Valentino Rossi to uh, you know really make a play for the championship, for them to really be competitive all year, uh, to give Mark Marquez a run for his money, and they just totally didn't. They struggled really badly. I mean, we saw uh, Joan Zarco on the who basically had. Uh, I think more or less the, the 2018 uh, engine, or a or, sorry, a 2017 engine in a in a 2016 chassis, and um, uh, he was uh, at many races. He was at least as, as competitive, if not more competitive, than the uh, than the factory riders, than Maverick Vinales and Valentino Rossi. Now they chose an engine early on for which had a bit more power but they in doing so they chose one which was just far too aggressive and they really paid the price for it all all year long in that the the, the bike was using up the tires too much it was spinning up too much they'd be competitive for you know maybe the first third of the race or the first half of the race uh, and then they'd uh, fade away and they ended up going for a record, what was it, 25, 26? 23. 23, yeah, 23 races without a win, which is incredible. Didn't win a, didn't win a race since Aston 2017 uh, until we got to Phillip Island uh, and Maverick Vinales finally sort of um, uh, saved them, which also came off the back of some setup changes, um, uh, actually moving the bike a little bit more in, in, in the direction of uh, of. Maverick Vinales setup rather than Valentino Rossi setup, and then we also saw uh, uh, Valentino Rossi in position to win the race at Sepang for a very very long time. 
until he until he finally crashed out. But uh, for me, the fact that they were absolutely nowhere for 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 so long for such a big part of the season, the fact that they were regularly being beaten by uh, Joan Zarco, um, that really th- that was the that was the big uh, the big story for me. Yeah, Neil, you were just talking there about Liverpool and how, as a fan, you've got no real faith in being able to get through to the end of the season. And Valentino Rossi fans and Yamaha fans probably feeling the same just coming through the end of last season. But at least there was some level of hope for Yamaha at the Hareth tests at the end of last year. Yeah, there was, but there was also a sign that things are just going to continue as they have been for the last while because you had Vinales saying one thing, I can fight for the championship with this bike, and then you had Rossi saying, I think at best, if a few guys retire ahead of us, we'll be fourth place, fifth place in the race, much as it was for the majority of 2018. Um, So, you know, as it stands right now, I don't think uh, we're seeing indications of some giant leap forward that Yamaha are going to make, um, especially when you see... Ducati bringing, wheeling out a whole uh, bag full of new tricks and Honda having basically its strongest lineup since, um, well, I can't really remember when. Um, there's been a, a rider lineup as, as strong as Lorenzo and, and Marquez um, coming out of the same gar- garage. So, um, yeah, there was definitely positive signs at the end of last year. Um, Vinales' win was great. Vin- Rossi you know, feasibly could have won the, the the last two races. It was quite unlucky, quite unfortunate not to. It was riding as well as we've seen him ride in years uh, at Malaysia and then at Valencia as well. Um, so there's no doubt about the riders being competitive. And I think the end of last year proved, if there were a few doubts, that maybe Rossi was past it and maybe Vinales had just lost his head. Um, they both proved in the, the autumn of last year that they're right up for this job and they're, you know, really motivated. Um, however... Um, you do suspect that those issues of a slightly confused direction uh, still remain. And uh, David, just uh, what Neil was talking about there, like the strongest rider lineup for Honda, probably since what Crivier and doing. So they've oh, invested on the. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. But, yeah I mean, this but since then, whenever they had you know two of the top line five hundred GP riders at that stage. But it's the first time since then that they've really had this case of having two riders that you expect to be able to challenge for a championship. Ducati's gone out and they've spent their money on investing on the infrastructure within the team. What have Yamaha been doing? Do you think is it a management problem? Is it a technical problem that's causing the the big issues for them? When you have little private chats to people who used to work for uh, Yamaha, then they will say that the problem is that they... They listen to Valentino Rossi because he's Valentino Rossi and they will always take his side. Now, Valentino Rossi's got a lot of experience. He's incredibly, uh, well, I mean, his record speaks for it, uh, speaks for itself. The question is, is he always right? Would it be better sometimes to, you know, weigh up the, the, the balance of feedback from both riders and make a choice based on that? That I'm not in a position to, to 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 say that. I don't think anyone is, except for uh, someone inside of Yamaha. So it, it's difficult to say. I, I think it makes it uh, having having two riders like that makes it very very difficult to actually set out a line. But then we also saw. I remember if you remember Austria when we saw uh, Tsuyas and the head of the Mosa GP project come out and and basically apologise. That uh, also suggests that there's a lot of. Uh, a lot of problems inside of Yamaha, um, inside of the MotoGP project. Everyone is confused. No one really knows, uh, you know, what's going on. Neil, you brought up the rider lineup initially, and 
this being the strongest lineup that Honda's had in a long time. Do you think it's a coincidental that this is also the first time in a long time where Honda's got their bike pretty much settled, pretty much sorted? We saw last year Crutchlow was able to make a big step forward again and just have that level of consistency through the season. Do you think is now the time where they could make that change? Whereas Yamaha, with two frontline riders, maybe they do just need to have one front rider just to be able to lead that direction? Quite possibly. Um, yeah, and I guess... Quite possibly, yeah, you could say that. But if you look at Honda, I mean, you've got Lorenzo and Marquez. I mean, they're chalk and cheese in terms of riding styles. Um, personalities are quite different. Huge egos involved here. I mean, it's quite similar in, in, in Yamaha because, you know, you've got two guys with different styles, different approaches, different levels of experience. Um, that's what it should be like in a top team. Um, top team should be... Pre- should be prepared to have two riders that have different styles and that can make it work. Like look at Giacchetti and Lorenzo last year and Davizioso. I mean, you're, again, you're looking at guys with completely different styles, yet by the spring and summer of last year, they were first, second or third pretty much every weekend before Lorenzo got injured. So this shouldn't be something that is holding them back greatly. Um, there are just some, I guess, some questions that remain regarding the bike, um, the philosophy, whether maintaining that Yamaha philosophy is still feasible and whether they can take a big enough step forward um, with that idea of having a bike that's silky smooth and always on rails. And um, yeah, I think, uh, I think the rider lineup shouldn't be, shouldn't be a hindrance to them um, for a team of their level. And this is, a, this is a team, of course, that had Rossi and, and Lorenzo as its two lead riders for I don't know how many years. And uh, that was never an issue back then in terms of them being competitive. Yeah, uh, Steve, I think your theory is about to be tested in Ducati because what we have in Ducati is Andrea Dovizioso, who is obviously the number one rider, and uh, Danilo Petrucci, who is uh, obviously a number two rider. I mean, we'll see how good he is. I think he's one of the more underrated riders on the grid because the the, the things he's achieved, given his background, is just remarkable. Um, but uh, it, it's also fairly... Or, well... It, it seems safe to assume that basically Danilo Petrucci is a is a placeholder just until uh, Pekka Benyai has, has had a year in uh, in Grand Prix, or until Jack Miller sort of uh, steps up uh, 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 steps up and shows that he earns it. So you don't really get the feeling in the way that um, Vinales and Rossi they are the long term solution at, at Yamaha. Lorenzo and Marquez are the long term uh, they they feature in. In Honda's long-term plans, you don't get the the, the feeling that um, that Petrucci is um, is Ducati's long-term uh, solution or long-term plan for the you know for, for the f- future of the Desmosedici and the future of the factory team. Yeah, Rossi, the long-term answer for at least as long as a forty-year-old can be the long-term <laughs> answer. But I think you're right with what you say about Petrucci there for sure, David. It, it is a case of just waiting for the next rider to come in there, but. The one thing for for me looking at Yamaha is they need someone that can just give them that direction that they do just row behind. As you said, you get different feedback from both riders and they don't know which direction to go in. And that's fine whenever you've got the bike that they had five years ago with Lorenzo and Rossi. But now their bike's behind and to try and catch up, it really is a case of you're putting yourself behind the eight ball whenever you've got that much of a divergence of opinion between the two riders. And also... Both riders want to have different opinions to the other. It's almost like, particularly with Vinales, what we've heard over the winter the last two years, he almost wants to just prove that he knows more than Rossi and he's just going to go down a different path as well. 
I mean, the reason he joined Yamaha was to become world champion. So yeah, obviously he wants um, uh, he wants them to listen to him so that he can achieve his uh, uh, his objective. So it's uh, yeah, it's difficult and it's an interesting situation. It's a situation that isn't really going to change very much in in two thousand and nineteen, uh, regardless of whether the bike is you know much better or not much better. There's still going to be this sort of tension between the the, the direction which which the factory needs to take. Well, the tension's starting to mount here as well, David, because we're just about to get to Neil's big topic of 2018. So, Neil, what was your big story of the year? Uh, well, it was a great year, in my opinion, 2018. Um, maybe not in terms of the championship battle, but in terms of races, um, the closeness of the field right the way down from first to 15th. Again, we saw a whole succession of records in terms of closest top 10s, top 15s. So there's lots of different things that you could pick out, but I'd have to say the biggest storyline um, from last year was Lorenzo's resurgence um, from really a place of, of total peril. Um, he was on the cusp of total humiliation. His uh, leap of faith going to Ducati was in danger of um, completely falling apart and resulting in him leaving without maybe even a podium in, in 20, 2018, if you were to believe how the first part of the season went. Um, I mean, he was pretty abysmal, we have to say. Um, races in Argentina, uh, I think he scored one point, and that was only because Marquez was uh, penalised after the race. Um, at Austin, he was beaten by Jack Miller and Tito Rabat. I mean, Lorenzo being beaten by Tito Rabat in a racing situation, that's something you probably never thought you would say. Um, judging by Tito's time in uh, the Premier class before then. And uh, a few hints of him getting a little bit stronger at Jerez and at Le Mans. Um, but just the way he came back at Mugello was something uh, so special. I think it, it really could only, only a ride of Lorenzo standing could have achieved that result. Um, to have that self-belief, that total conviction in his own ability, um, to demand what he needed from the bike. And you have to say credit to Ducati for continuing to stick with him because it seemed at that stage, well, I guess both parties knew that the, the relationship wasn't going to continue. Ducati kept working um, for him, kept bringing new parts uh, that ultimately helped him uh, in his quest to, to finish the podium and win races. And the fact that it wasn't just the race where he inherited first place because someone crashed out ahead of him. Um, the fact that he led from the front, basically from the first lap, um, the fact that he was using a softer, I think a softer front tire than Andrea Dovizioso, the fact that he just effortlessly pulled away from Dovizioso, who was supposed to be the guy that uh, that Ducati could, could depend on to fight for the championship in 2018. Um, I think it was the sign of a very, very special rider indeed. Um, and that's not really saying anything new. We know Lorenzo is a class act, but there had been this doubt before then um, as to whether he could perform on a bike that was as drastically different from the Yamaha as Ducati's Desmond Sedici. Um, and then just to top it off, you know, after the race at Mugello to say, oh yeah, our relationship's over, it's, it's a real shame, I feel sadness that we're not going to be working together in the future because, you know, I thought we could win the championship. Uh, and then two days later, three days later, I think it's announced that he's going to Honda, like one of the most sensational uh, moves I think we've seen in bike racing um, in the last 30 years, maybe even longer. So, um, basically Lorenzo's kind of resurgence, his comeback from nowhere, uh, from the dead, 
and he really was a force uh, to be reckoned with in, in you know from Mugello onwards um, I know he had that stupid mistake at Aragon and then he had the huge crash at Thailand which ultimately ended his year um, but he did say something at Valencia where he said those two months between, um, I think it was between Mugello and Aragon, he was like, you know, we were the fastest ones. We were going to tests. We were half a second faster than guys per lap um, at these tests. Everyone was looking at us. He said, you know, we felt like they were the kings of the world. And, um, yeah, it would be hard to argue with that. In some ways, he was the, the I know the result sheets doesn't necessarily reflect, reflect this. It was one of his poorer seasons in terms of results. But I think in some ways, Lorenzo was one of the stars of 2018. Yeah, and I think one of the key things that Lorenzo showed everyone once again is just the importance of having that confidence as well, David. Once a top rider loses their confidence, they have to still maintain the belief that they can get it back and get back to the front. But once you lose your confidence, it takes time to get it back. But it, it's literally just a click of the fingers for a top rider. Once they get that feeling, once they're able to get back and get on a, on a winning spree like Lorenzo. And Lorenzo, when he won in Mugello, as Neil said, it really was the type of ride that only a Lorenzo or a rider of that calibre could have could have gotten back to the front with. Yeah, exactly. Because not only does he win it at Mugello, then follows it up two weeks later with a win at Barcelona as well, just to show that, you know, this wasn't a fluke. I can do this. It was extremely impressive. And also in terms of, you know, the narrative, the grand narrative of MotoGP, it was great because the, the win at Mugello came just after Claudio Domenicali, the CEO of Ducati, had made a fair number of sort of disparaging remarks about paying people lots of money and them not delivering and uh, about there being nothing wrong with the bike and uh, yeah, disparaging remarks such as calling him a great rider and not <laughs> our champion <laughs> i mean it doesn't get more disparaging than that <laughs> this is this is very true indeed this is this is very true indeed but yeah it's uh, i mean it was um um uh, basically the whole sort of situation was, was sort of spilling out into uh, into the open the whole of this um this argument between the two of them between um, uh, Ducati and uh, or uh, and Lorenzo and then for him to come there and um uh, and sort of you know win there win at Mugello uh, get pilot Mugello win in Barcelona uh, then later on win in um, uh, win in Austria uh, it was it was remarkable and it was it was a relatively small change it was um cuz i i don't remember uh, uh, when i interviewed him but um he talked about there been a change in the in the shape of the fuel tank between the 2017 uh, between the GP17 and the GP18, and um, the Ducati crew sort of didn't really think there was much, it made that much of a difference that that the difference was that much, and so he sort of literally he took uh, Christian Gabarini, his crew chief, uh, next to I think the um, uh, the the Avinti garage and pointed at, uh, at the GP17 and said, "Look, look, look! It's a different bike. The, the the tank is different." And so from that was from that point forward, when Ducati actually. Uh, um, uh, brought a tank because they brought a tank, uh, a slightly modified tank to the, um, uh, I think the Jerez test, which they tried out. Uh, and then they had something, uh, you know, much better for uh, Mugello. And it was such an immediate success that um, it was because what was happening was, uh, you know, Lorenzo led at, led at Jerez. He led for the, for, for the few, few laps until he got tired. The fact that he could, you know, keep on riding Magella with this tank that it, it, it supported him it gave him enough um, uh, support under braking uh, uh, meant he could ride without actually you know tiring his arms out 
um, that was um, it, it sort of proved that the speed had been there all along and it was also interesting seeing that the one of the first things that Honda did at the uh, at the Jerez test in November was bring a tank with some with a little bit of a shape for him to uh, for Lorenzo to you know support himself again using his legs and not just his arms and shoulders just another thing Dave to add on to what you were saying um, one of the things that struck me about Lorenzo's win at Mugello was uh, it was obviously quite hot on the Sunday and that caught quite a few guys out and uh, notably Honda really struggled at Mugello when uh, I think there was a test there maybe three weeks before the race conditions were a lot cooler and Marquez was under the lap record and I remember someone from Ducati saying like oh, yeah there's not really any chance of us winning at Mugello because Marquez had been so strong but when the temperatures went up uh, Honda really struggled and Lorenzo knowing front tyre wear was going to be an issue uh, said that after qualifying he basically went to videos and started studying ways that he could ride a little bit differently to manage the front tyre in a really good way and he first put his revised techniques into practice in morning warm up and then for those techniques to pay off so spectacularly um, I think that was uh, that was the sign of, of greatness in many respects um, and I, I did an interview with Lorenzo uh, at Thailand um, before he had that massive crash and he said that this was something that he did quite a few times in 2018 he would study um, maybe how the bike needed to be ride, uh, ridden differently um, on a Saturday night ahead of Sunday just from the data he had collected and from what he had seen on track didn't always work out but um, I think you could say that at Mugello and then at his later um, success at Austria some of those changes that he put into place from Saturday to Sunday really paid off um, and to be able to do that, you know, it, it takes um, a rider of the highest caliber to be able to do that. Okay, so Lorenzo is my pick for one of the moments of 2018. Uh, Steve, what about you? Well, for me, Neil, the biggest thing for me wasn't so much, you know, in Superbikes, I think looking at this year in particular, it was easy to look at Jonathan Ray and the amount of success that he had. You know, he won 17 races. I think he was only off the podium in three races. And it really was a, a stellar season for him. But it was really a case of just showing how difficult it is to win in Superbikes. We saw Michael Vandermark did the double at Donington. Alex Lowe's won in Brno. So both Yamaha riders were able to tick that box of winning races. Melandri started the year with a double. Chaz Davis won a couple of races. Tom Sykes won a race. But it was really a case of just showing how tough it is to beat just a complete team. And that's what Ray, Pararibe, the rest of that crew on the number one side of the Kawasaki box are. And there was consistency there, whereas there wasn't consistency with a lot of other teams, whether they had a new bike or they had, you know, a new crew chief, a rider changing teams, different engineers working with the riders. It really was a case of just showing how difficult it was to get the balance where you can take the fight to Ray. I think for Ray and for Kawasaki and for his crew, they did a great job this year, it's clear. But this was also a year that sort of just showcased just how important that continuity was for Ray, how important it was just that everyone in that crew knew what the other person was going to do at all times. And that really was the foundation of their success rather than anything else about the bike, about the ride or anything else. I always think it was just that level of consistency between the crew that was probably the biggest factor because it's all the same people for the last four years of work together. Yeah, I mean, the, the, what I found the most interesting, it, it's almost um, the Jonathan Ray or Kawasaki's 2018 season is almost illustrative 
uh, of, or it's it's a, it's an example, a para, a paradigm of of what motorcycle racing is all about. Because first of all, you've got a very talented rider, and obviously very talented rider. Um, you've got a bike which is um, uh, competitive and good enough for multiple riders to be uh, to be fast on. But much more importantly, it's why it's a team sport. It's about the team having that stability of team around you, not not changing very much, not changing the bike very much either. I mean, there was a new bike, I think, for 2018, but it was only a very it's a fair, relatively small update rather than uh, something uh, radically new. And it shows that motorcycle racing is about evolution and not about revolution because you can do something very, very different. Um, but then it takes you – there are so many – tiny small details into actually that go into actually you know winning and, and and going faster than everyone else that it takes you a long time to actually figure figure all of these bits and pieces out and put all of the pieces of the jigsaw um uh, puzzle in into place so yeah it was um it was interesting in uh, sort of in that respect really and it's, again it's why People say, well, at some point KTM are going to go to a uh, to a, an aluminium frame for the same reason uh, that everyone else is with an aluminium frame. But then if they do that, they lose all of that stability, exactly the same sort of stability which is um, uh, uh, which they've got. They've got to start all over again, uh, collect all of the data again, and 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 it's almost starting from scratch. And Jonathan Ray's World Superbike title. Again, it was just about stability, about having every everything in the same place and tweaking a little bit here and tweaking a little bit there, uh, and it all paying off in the end. Yeah, and I think that's really the key thing. As I said, just that level of continuity makes the difference. Everyone else is chasing that massive jump that's going to manage to make them find their way to the front of the field, whereas Kawasaki just had to chip away and find... You know, just like what uh, Jeremy Burgess used to always say, just find one, two percent over the winter and we're going to stay at the front. And that's exactly what Kawasaki do year in, year out. But it's going to be interesting to see what happens now in 2019 as well. A lot of new bikes on the grid and hopefully a new challenge for Ray as well. Yeah, I mean, we'll also get to see whether, uh, you know, Revolution is, uh, because obviously Ducati being the, bring the V4, that's going to be a very, very big step. Uh, we'll get to see how much uh, of a role that will play as well. Yeah, so that brings us to a close on 2018 and uh, now we get to finally start looking forward to 2019 as well. Obviously for the MotoGP paddock winter testing just about to start to get underway again in Sepang in only a few weeks time and David just when we look forward to the 2019 season what's the, the one thing that you're most excited about? Uh, I think um, I'm most excited about the thing that ever that well almost everyone is most excited about, or at least very excited about, and, that, and that's seeing how Jorge Lorenzo will go on the Honda. It was interesting what what Neil was saying earlier about uh, the the things which uh, uh, which Lorenzo had done to get used to riding the the the, the Ducati. Uh, going away and studying, uh, you know, studying film, um, uh, studying video to, to to see how he had to change his riding style, um, and you could actually see that when Lorenzo was on the Yamaha, he never used to use the rear brake, and so he had to teach himself to use the rear brake. And you could actually see him. Uh, I, I think Saxon ring. I think both Saxon ring last year and this year. Uh, I went down during uh, morning warm up and uh, sat in the corner. Turn thirteen, the last corner, because you can get up very, very close on the uh, on the left hand side, and you can actually see you're close enough to watch them actually braking. You're close enough to watch them actually applying the uh, uh, applying the thumb brake. So it's interesting to actually see 
Lorenzo using the break through that corner. Um, and now he's got, uh, again, another step to make, another completely different bike. Um, I don't think the step from the Ducati to the Honda is as big as from the uh, Yamaha to uh, uh, to the Ducati, but he's still got a lot of adapting to do. He's still got a lot of, uh, you know, the, the, the things to do before he can unlock the secrets of the bike. Uh, so I'm really looking forward to seeing how quickly he can do that. Yeah, I think what you said there, Dave, um, pretty much what what I would say if uh, Steve had chosen me first. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, clearly uh, he has his favourites, which uh, will be remembered for the next show when I'm presenting. <laughs> but but um, It's just I, that I respect David Fogg more than you, Neil. <laughs> it's understandable. Um, or, I, I mean, I did it in alphabetical order. Yeah, that was it. Yeah, just, just the alphabet. Um, I think how Lorenzo's going to adapt to the Honda is something that's really, really exciting. I also think the dynamic in that team and how it's going to change is also really exciting. And I can't wait to see how Marquez reacts to Lorenzo being there, how Lorenzo reacts to having Marquez in the same garage. Um, I just don't see any situation during the year in which um, fireworks aren't going to kind of fly and sparks fly between the pair. Because if you look at Lorenzo... In the last couple of big blowouts, he's had aiming his anger at, at some of his rivals. I'm thinking of like Rossi at Misano in 2016, which was over basically a tough but ultimately fair pass that Rossi did um, at the, uh, the little slow hairpin toward the end of the lap. Uh, you look at Aragon last year um, when Marquez went under him, but then Lorenzo crashed entirely of his own, of his own making. Um, those were basically moments when the other rider hadn't really done anything wrong and he let fly and got really upset and angry um, over very little and all it's going to take is something that he sees Marquez doing which he doesn't like um, for that to happen again and, and how the team will then react to that is going to be really really interesting um, because Pedroza, fantastic rider um, but ultimately he was never a, a match uh, for Mark over a championship. There were there were certain weekends when he was and you could see Mark didn't react. Like You could see it phased him. Um, you also have to look at whenever Cal Crutzel was really competitive on track, how Marquez almost has to raise his game to be the top Honda. And if Lorenzo can just get that consistency going, it's going to be fantastic. It's going to be a must-watch. Um, and I know a lot of people have said it's the the Prost and a dynamic. Uh, I think it does have the potential to be on a similar level. Yeah, I mean, Pedrosa was always the perfect teammate because he was capable of winning. Uh, he was capable of winning when the number one rider uh, 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 couldn't win. And he never raised a fuss. Uh, he never made a stink. There might have been sort of, you know, tensions behind the uh, behind the scenes, but he never... Uh, in you know, he never put a, a foot wrong. Never said, never did, never said uh, an ill word against his teammate, and that is absolutely not going to happen with um uh, with Lorenzo. I mean, you know, Lorenzo and Marquez, two massive egos. The same with Lorenzo and Rossi, again, two massive egos. Uh, even Lorenzo and Dovizioso, they managed to uh, to argue as well. But then Dovizioso and Iannone used to argue. So obviously, the thing about that's the thing about motorbike races. They you have to have an ego to uh, uh, to, to to want to do it. And um, some people are better at hiding it than others. And I think neither Mark Marquez nor uh, Jorge Lorenzo are going to be particularly good at uh, good at it. 
Yeah, I have to say there, Neil, you sounded just like a number one rider that had been put second in a press release there. <laughs> so, um, obviously... We all have egos, even here at the Paddock Post podcast. I don't really care what you have to think about your 2019 story now. David, what would be your second <laughs> top story for 2019? Uh, no, I think it's, it's, it's Neil's top story for 2019. Uh, well, I'm going to be I'm going to be the petty team manager and say my own then. Um, <laughs> Neil, what's your top story for 2019? Um, well, I think David has taken my top story, but another thing that I'm really excited about seeing this year is um, is Alex Rins and Suzuki, and seeing whether they can maintain that momentum that they had pretty much throughout uh, 2018 in its entirety. Um, by the end of last year, by the autumn of last year, I mean Rins was making top six finishes consistently consistently and with ease and then he had a run of podium finishes uh, to bring the year to the end and those included some pretty exceptional rides um, at Valencia I mean you know he cleared off at the start of uh, the race at Valencia the others couldn't see which way it went um, and there's always this thing in my mind where I'm not quite sure just how good Rins is he's not one of those guys where you're like oh yeah he's, he's a Marquez he's Lorenzo I don't think he's quite at that level but with the right environment and the right bike and more experience you do wonder if he could get to that level and i think the way suzuki has been managed since that horrible opening to 2017 has been so smart um how they've kept certain personnel on board um and even with their recruitment of Dryan mir i think mir's a really astute sign and even though ian only had a really good year in 2018 i still think mir um, by the end of 2019 uh, is going to be a pretty impressive guy finishing regularly in the top 10 um, and yeah I'm quite excited about seeing that because you know we know that Honda and Ducati are going to be strong Yamaha that's a bit of a question mark but on the basis of their rider lineup being so strong they should be there and it's great to have a fourth factory I think up there as well as um, as we saw in 2016 when Vinales was there and last year with Rins um, so you know, listening to Rin speaking at the Jerez test there back in November, um, I don't see why he won't be winning races in 2019, honestly. Um, I think that's a really good settled team. They seem to be quite content with their engine choice uh, for 2019. It was already a really good bike, um, but this engine choice, uh, they brought a new engine for the test ride again, totally at the Japanese Grand Prix. Uh, he was beaming about it, said it had a lot more power, and that was one of the aspects of the bike that was lacking in the past. Um, and... Yeah, I think Rins showed also he's like a very quiet, conservative guy when you speak to him. He doesn't really open up that much. Uh, he's very softly spoken. And I think that might hide um, just some of that competitive spirit that lies within. Um, we saw certain races last year where he really give as good as he got. Um, Aston in particular stands out. Um, and there were some issues, some moments where it didn't quite go to plan. He crashed too much in the first third of the year, but got the consistency sorted in the second half. And... Um, yeah, I'm not saying he's going to win the title or even fight for the title, but I think he could be a race winner, a regular podium finisher, and possibly on for finishing in the top four of the championship. Um, so, yeah, that's something that I think uh, we should we should look out for in the year ahead. Yeah, because I think for me last year, obviously 
in his rookie season, Rins missed four or five rounds because of injuries, and he, we never really got to see what he could do as a rookie. And I remember, like last year, I think I went to six rounds in MotoGP last year, so he'd sort of flitter in and out of the paddock through the course of the season. And I was in Qatar for the first race, and he looked really good in Qatar. I think he qualified in the second row. Then he got a podium in Argentina at the start of the season, and I really thought, like, oh, he's going to kick on from this. But then that opening, then the next four or five rounds were a bit of a struggle. He had quite a few crashes, as you said, retirements from races, just different issues coming on to him. I think the next race I came to was something around Bruno time. And again, a struggle in Bruno, a struggle the next time out in Austria. And I really thought like, you know, this is going to be really tough for Rince to recover from this. But from that point on, Neil, as you said, like pretty much top five every race for the rest of the season. Really strong from Mizano through to the end of the year. Whenever turned up in Sepang and Valencia again, he looked really good on the bike. He looked confident whenever you talked to him in the paddock. As you said, he doesn't open up too much, but you could still see that level of confidence just had grown just from the course of the summer. But uh, David, what was your thoughts on Rins last year and how do you project him going forward? Well, I mean, yeah, uh, uh, as you say, like he got better in the second half of the season. Rins th- said um, the Suzuki bought uh, an engine update, which obviously because they had such a terrible season in 2017, they could bring engine updates during uh, during 2018. Uh, they bought a new engine at, uh, uh, at Assen, I think. Yeah, and um, from that point forward, th- that was a step forward, and it took him a few races to get it sort of uh, 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 sorted uh, sorted out. Um, but that that made a big difference. That was one certainly one reason why they were more competitive. I think you're right. What Neil was saying about you know th- th- some of the things, organisational things, which uh, Suzuki have done, it's been really really smart. Having Silvan Guintoli as uh, as the test rider has paid off really, really well. They've got some really good engineers working for them in the background. Um, um, uh, uh, Andrea Iannone, as talented as he is, you never really know what you're going to get. You're either going to get um, uh, someone who's going to win a race, or you're going to get someone who's going to, you know, skulk around and uh, and be miserable and, and ruin the uh, ruin the atmosphere in the team. Um, Juan Mir. I'm really looking forward to seeing Juan Mir next year. Juan Mir um, is a really, really talented young rider. Um, he's going to adapt very, very quickly. Uh, very I think smart, he has very intelligent. Adapted very quickly. You yeah, say. yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly, exactly. Um, so yeah, I mean, really, Suzuki next year is going to be a. Re- it's going to be a really sort of big thing. And in fact, I'm really, I'm looking forward to seeing all of the. Um, uh, all of the rookies, really, um, you know, like Pekka Banyar, Juan Mir. That's that's they're, they're going to be really, really. Uh, they're going to be really, really good. It's going to be interesting to see what Quattararo can do. Uh, it's a bit of a shame that Miguel Oliveira is on the is on the KTM because we, you know, the KTM still has a long way to go. But um, uh, yeah, the rookies next year are going to be really interesting as well. But I think Juan Mir, Alex Rins, those two uh, together is really something to look forward to. And Mr. English, I believe it's your turn. Um, I'm going to do the decent thing and actually be a gentleman and ask you uh, about your opinion. Uh, what is the big thing you're looking forward to in 2019? Well, to be honest, Neil, Dave stole mine as well by talking about the rookies in MotoGP. Because I have to say, like, Mir and, and Bagnaya, whenever I saw them in Valencia and Jerez, 
just looked great on the bike. It looked like they'd been on MotoGP bikes for years and had done lots of testing and things like that. And then when you find out Mir's only done, you know, I think it was a day and a half in Japan just to get used to the bike before jumping on it. And he looked super comfortable right from the outset. Bagnaya, of course, had some experience in the past, looked great right from the start. I'm looking forward to seeing how Morbidelli does on a Yamaha as well. And oh, then yeah. Quattararo too. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, like, uh, a Morbidelli on the Yamaha is going to be, although he's, he's not a rookie, it'll be, it'll be his second season, but he'll actually be on a bike which is competitive. Really looking forward to seeing that. And what you said about Banyar, I remember watching Banyar when he had the ride on the Aspar Ducati, and he was riding it around like a, um, uh, he only did, what well, I think sort of about 10, 15 laps, something like that. I think he did, did like two exits and he was riding around on it. Um, uh, he was using sort of like Moto 3 lines uh, through some of the corners, but he was he was changing so quickly and learning so quickly and adapting so quick. And it, it was really, it was really fun to watch. So he's going to be, um, he's going to be really, really interesting uh, to, uh, to watch. But there must be something in, uh, in World Superbikes that you're looking forward to, uh, uh, Steve. Of course there is, David. There's lots of things to look forward to in Superbikes for this year. The big thing, though, I'd say is all the new bikes. Like, we've got a brand new Ducati. We saw that down in the Hareth test. It looks great. It looks like it gives a good platform for Bautista to jump into the championship and have a bike that uh, he should be quite competitive on right from the outset. Haven't seen the new BMW yet. They've had their first rollout test that was down in Spain just before Christmas so Tom Sykes on that bike Marcus Reiterberger as well so that's going to be really interesting to see how the SMR team adapt to the BMW brand new bike team's got a lot of pressure on their shoulders to be able to make it work but there's a lot of factory support from it and then it's going to be really interesting to see what level of factory support we actually get from Honda as well HRC have said that they're coming back into World SBK next year I'm not expecting 2019 to suddenly see the Honda at the front of the field. I think it's going to be a, a pure learning experience. It's going to be just about getting the Marowaki team up to speed. And then maybe for 2020, that's whenever Honda bring out a new bike that actually does move the goalposts again in superbikes. Because if HRC put in their full effort, they'll be competitive again. If they don't put in their full effort and it's just a bit of a ploy to say that they're, they're putting their foot back in the superbike waters... That's where it gets really dangerous for Honda because there is this expectation they're going to be quick. There is an expectation that they're going to win and they need to go all in for that if they're to have that success. It's certainly the uh, the, the new Honda because I think there's been some patent uh, uh, drawings that are leaked of it that will use the variable, variable valve timing. But again, it's the old VTEC system which they're using and um, which seems to me from a, you know, just a quick glance at it to be a lot less... Um, revolutionary, if you like, than uh, than BMW Shift Cam. Um, I'm interested to see how that goes. And as you said, we saw the the Ducati at Jerez, and the, that that Panigale V4 looked absolutely fantastic. And it was competitive, just you know, on almost a single outing, uh, and they were already uh, quickly up to speed. So by about half, mid-season, that that bike should be a real weapon. Yeah, it looked and sounded mega as well, like it basically was just like a MotoGP bike out on track with Pirelli tyres. Put Eugene Laverty on that bike as well. He, I think as it stands, he's going to be on different suspension to the factory team. But you put him on Statue again, there's another competitive rider, hopefully with a competitive team around and be able to get to the front. Like the pressure could very easily turn and be on Kawasaki and Jonathan Ray with all these Ducatis, BMW coming back in with a big effort. Like obviously enough, as we said, 
whenever we're talking about superbikes earlier, the big thing for Kawasaki's always been they've got that level of consistency. Everyone's been the same in Ray's side of the box. That's their big strength. But maybe halfway through this season, when everyone else learns what they need from their bikes, they can make that big step forward. Yeah, and uh, Melandri on a Yamaha as well. That's going to shake things up. Um, uh, Lowe's and uh, Van der Mark, sort of another year of consistency for them under the belt. It's going to be a lot more uh, mixed up, if you like, this year than uh, the than than it has been sort of uh, before. Yeah, I think it's sort of primed now for all those teams, all those bikes, all those riders to try and get a little bit more time at the front. Like last year, as we said, we did have both those Yamaha riders picking up wins and we did have both Ducatis, both Kawasaki's. So there was that that uh, that side of it last year, put top rack into the podium spots a couple of times. So you've got a really good depth of field in superbikes right now. And now it's just a case of trying to make sure that everyone's got good enough bikes underneath them as well. Yeah, it, it, to me, it's always a shame that we never really find out because, you know, we start at Phillip Island where really it's more about the rider than the bike. Then we go to Thailand, which is a, a, a bit of a strange one, if you like. It's a um, uh, it's a different track. The conditions are very, very different. And you be, you don't really find out where everyone stands until we start to get back to Europe. Yeah, and that's the one thing about maybe next year with the third race, the sprint race, there's you know more points up for grabs than that. Maybe that's where once we get back to Europe and we find that level for the rest of the field, maybe that's where they start clawing back some points on Ray. Because obviously you'll go to Australia and Burry Ram, they're two of Ray's strongest circuits. You'd expect him to be able to pick up wins there, be able to leave those opening couple of rounds. The expectation is going to be that he's going to be leading the championship again. But maybe once we get back to Europe, to more traditional circuits, that's where the Ducatis can start to make up some ground, Yamaha make up some ground. And that's where, like, once you get two, three riders at the front against Ray, that's where suddenly Ray's bad day, instead of, as I said earlier, finishing on the podium, because I think he only did it, he finished off the podium only three races last year. But next year, with more bikes at the front, maybe his bad day is finishing sixth rather than fourth. That's the difference between, you know, a close championship and one which is decided very early. Yeah, and uh, that's for sure. But uh, that brings us to an end here for the opening show of the season, the opening show of 2019. And uh, David, thanks for joining us. Neil, thanks for joining us. And most importantly, thanks to everyone for listening in. And uh, one other thing just to talk about before we close the show, we've set up a Patreon page as well. So patreon.com forward slash paddock pass podcast. And uh, on that, you can become a subscriber and a supporter to the Paddock Pass podcast. We're going to be using that as a platform just for giving additional interviews and different features through the course of the season. So if you want to be a supporter for the podcast, just subscribe on patreon.com forward slash Paddock Pass podcast. And as usual, you can follow us on all of our normal social media channels, whether it's Twitter or on Facebook as well. So thanks for joining us. And hopefully it won't be too long until the next show for the Paddock Pass podcast. Sorry, lads, I had to sort out tax things there, so I didn't <laughs> listen to any of that. It's all right. <laughs> so, um, uh, all right. It, it's, I'll go to Big Neil now for, for yours, Neil.